All right, open your Bibles if you want to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25. While you do, let me tell you a story. You've probably never heard of a faithful preacher named Nathaniel Evans. Anybody heard of Nathaniel Evans? I didn't think so. His friends called him Nate. Every day along a stretch of Highway 43 just outside of Corcoran, he walked carrying a sign. It was one of those repent, the end of the world is near signs. One day as he was walking along the highway, he came to a huge lever just on the shoulder by the side of the road. There was a large legible sign next to it that read, pull this lever to end the world. Now authorities have never determined who put the lever there. Nate probably realized it was put there as a prank to ridicule him and his gospel preaching. Nevertheless, he decided he could use it as a sort of pulpit. So on that day, he stopped there putting his sign next to that sign. He caused such a distraction that traffic became congested as rubberneckers tried to read both signs and then look at the lever and figure out what was going on. Suddenly, a hay hauler came around the curve and the driver realized he just wasn't gonna be able to stop in time. The driver had a choice, run over Nate or run into the lever. As the driver explained later to the highway patrolman, he felt he had no choice. Pointing to the red smear on the road that used to be Nathaniel Evans, he said, better Nate than lever. I really, I was hoping somebody would raise their hand and say they heard of Nathaniel Evans. I just, I figured there's always one. Now, you've probably never seen a lever like that, but you have seen someone with a sign that reads, the end is near. Is the end near? Well, that depends on what you mean by the end. Most people think of the end in terms of some sort of final catastrophe that will wipe out all or most of humanity. When I was a kid, nuclear war was the thing we thought would end the world. Remember that? Those of us who were at school when the bomb detonated, who could duck and cover under our pressed wood desks, <laughs> might live through the initial blast. <laughs> you remember? They showed that picture, that famous picture of that house just being wiped out by wind like uh, miles from the blast. And then they said, now get under your desk. Even if you survived at school, afterward, Godzilla would find you and eat you because of the nuclear problem. A zombie apocalypse is the current favorite end of the world scenario. Zombies, of course, are relentless, flesh-eating, undead, once-human monsters. Literary and cinematic versions of zombies seem to be popping up nearly everywhere in recent years. The big-budget movie World War Z and the hugely popular TV series, The Walking Dead, and even in a hipster car insurance commercial that's running currently. By the way, what did the zombie say to his date? I just love a woman with brains. <laughs> what does a zombie say during an MMA match? Do you want a piece of me? I didn't... <laughs> Oh, man. All right, that's it. While we Christians always get accused of saying the end is near, the Bible really doesn't predict that kind of end for the world. I mean, the Apostle Peter does say the end of all things is at hand. It's 1 Peter 4, 7. But the word end means something like the consummation of the age. There won't be one final apocalyptic event that destroys all of humanity as we know it. Although it's often used to describe a great devastation or cataclysm, the literal meaning of apocalypse is an unveiling or a revealing. 
A better translation is the word revelation. The last book of the Bible is the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It unveils him, revealing him in his second coming to the earth and afterwards in eternity. Now, true, the earth will be devastated by the coming seven-year great tribulation described in some detail in the revelation. Fully four-fifths of the world's population will be killed by natural or supernatural disasters. But at his coming, the second coming, the Lord will establish a kingdom on the earth and renew the earth for a thousand years. Now, it's true, after the thousand years, the Lord will destroy the earth by fire, but then there will be a new earth, a new heaven, and those who have trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation will live together with him on into eternity. So there will be a consummation. History is heading to something being completed. It might, therefore, be more accurate for us to say the beginning is near. And it will be the end of the world as we know it, but its replacements are far better. Now, there are a few things that need to end. And the sooner they end, the better. They were never meant to be a part of God's creation, and it's taken him some doing over time to eradicate them. I'll let the Old Testament prophet Isaiah tell us what will end. If you're in Isaiah 25, let's read verses seven and eight, where he says, he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. The end is near for three things, death, tears, and the rebuke of God's people. We're gonna take them one at a time, but before we talk about their end, it might be helpful for me to explain what is going on in these verses from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapters 25 through 27, he is predicting the future beyond our own day and age, looking far forward to the time after the seven-year great tribulation when a remnant of God's people, Israel, would be preserved safely to finally enjoy the kingdom of God on the earth. And he was also looking beyond that kingdom into eternity. The covering cast over all people, he mentions, refers to death. Death is pictured as a covering like the shroud that would be placed over a dead body. You know that dramatic scene in uh, TV and movies where they they take the sheet and put it over the person's head signifying that they're gone. That's what this is saying. The sorrow caused by death is pictured as a veil that affects all the nations of the world. Death will be destroyed, Isaiah says, swallowed up forever. He then expands the destruction of death to include two other sufferings, tears and what he calls the rebuke of his people. He doesn't mean that mankind will make a dent in disease and expand lifespans. He's not talking about discovering the cure for cancer. Jesus will swallow up death forever means there will be no more death. I thought that there was nothing more certain than death and taxes. What's not hard to understand the death of death if you remember that death was not part of God's original creation. He put Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden. He visited them daily. It was all so perfect. There was one rule, one boundary, one restriction. Don't eat a particular fruit from a particular tree. If they did, the Lord said they would surely die. It would bring death into the universe and upon their offspring, the human race. People tend to get angry with God about this restriction. Why did he have to give them this one rule? Well, I'll tell you in a moment. But think of this. If you're Adam and Eve, you've got every possible fruit from every imaginable tree 
all totally organic and healthy to choose from? Do you really need to try the one restricted fruit? How lame are you? I mean, seriously. This is why your kids do the same thing. You can tell your kids you have 1,500 things that you can choose from, but not this one. And that's the one they're drawn to. They send and we sin because of that. Now, why this one restriction? As near as I can tell, if you want a person or persons to love you of their own will and by their own choice, you must give them a genuine freedom to choose. Anything else would not be love. And so um, God made a universe in which he would give human beings a free will and a free choice. With their freedom, Adam and Eve chose badly. They chose death and it brought death into the universe and upon us as a race. Now God immediately went to work in the garden to counteract their choice, a choice by the way that we call sin. He promised he would himself come into the world he created and take our place in death so that we might live forever without sin as he originally intended. From that promise forward, the Bible is the unfolding drama that describes exactly how God came to save us. He came as a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sins, and then he rose from the dead, conquering death and everything that follows from sin. And so God in the garden, he said, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to conquer sin and death, but it's going to involve me coming into your experience as a man. And as the God-man, I will die and rise from the dead, defeating death forever, conquering sin that you might live that God might regain what man had lost. Death has been destroyed by Jesus Christ, but it has not yet been completely swallowed up. People still die, and they will until after the great tribulation and after the thousand-year kingdom until eternity. We can, however, celebrate the death of death. For one thing, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to be absent from your body in death is to be immediately present with the Lord in heaven. For another thing, if a loved one dies, and if they were a believer, then you have the certain hope you will be reunited with them in heaven forever. And furthermore, we are promised that we will be raised from the dead, never to die again, in a perfect, timeless body fit for eternity. Now I have to add to that the promise that some of us may never die. The Lord promised to return before the great tribulation to remove his church from the earth. He will resurrect the bodies of the believers who have died through the centuries, and when he returns, some believers will be alive on the earth. Believers living at the moment of his return for the church will be immediately transformed into their eternal state without ever having died. Now, these truths about death and resurrection prompted the Apostle Paul to exclaim, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The end is near for death. In the meantime, we triumph over death knowing our certain destiny. Unless you're not a believer, then your destiny is very different and it's terrifying. Death will hold you conscious and aware in a place called Hades until the final resurrection of non-believers. Having rejected the only possible means of salvation, you cannot enter heaven. The only other address is hell. Does that make you afraid? If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, it should make you very afraid. It should terrify you. Now, the end is near for tears. 
I was with a woman the other day in the ER whose husband had been rushed in by ambulance with an apparent but totally unexpected heart attack. She wept and wept and wept. It just kept coming in waves. She was a believer, but that in itself cannot stop tears, not this side of eternity. Crying is strange, is it not? You think you're doing okay, you're handling the situation, and then all of a sudden you get choked up, you can't get the words out, your eyes fill with tears. There's so very much to cry about in the world in which we live. I wonder if we don't cry more when we think about the awful suffering that people are enduring. I don't want to evoke crying, but I want you to think about your tears for a moment. That sorrow, that pit in you from which tears are formed, it's about at its end. If you're a believer, you'll be with Jesus and he will wipe away every tear. You'll also find something waiting for you in heaven, maybe on your mantle in your mansion. There'll be a bottle and in it will be your tears. In Psalm 56 verse eight, put my tears into your bottle, are they not in your book? What a precious meditation that is. Apparently the Lord collects your tears in a bottle or bottles and records their volume in a ledger. They're precious to him. Uh, there's a perfume shop at Disneyland, probably other places do it too, where you can buy this uh, fancy perfume and then they, uh, they will hand paint on the bottle uh, for you. So it's a custom kind of a thing. And, and so, you know, the Lord says that your tears uh, are in a bottle. Some of you think well, they're, they're gonna be like in a 50-gallon drum, you know? <laughs> I just, you know, it's gonna be like a wine cellar full of them, but, but it's, it's, it's gonna be something real and something precious, and they're in a book. And so God has a record of them. One author said, today tears are being shed in dark rooms where children are being held as sex slaves. In Africa, as people remain homeless and without food and water, in the United States, as many remain jobless, in hospitals and on the streets where the mentally ill are forgotten, in homes around the world where people are spiritually lost and have no hope. We live in a fallen world. Tragedies happen and humans are not always kind to one another. Tears are shed. It's hard to fathom God collecting every single one, but he does. He notices and he records each tear and each lament. Well, that's all great, but maybe you feel more like this. Psalm 42, verse three, my tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? You ever gone through a time like that? You're probably going through a time like that now, some of you, where you're just crying and crying, you don't see the end of it. Where is God when it hurts? It would be a good time to recall that Jesus was a man of sorrows who was well acquainted with grief. Jesus cried twice that we can pinpoint. He wept outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus which is always interesting to me because he knew he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. He's crying not so much for the death of Lazarus, but just for the sorrow in the world that's caused by living in the world. And then he also wept over the city of Jerusalem, knowing that the Jews would officially reject him and seeing into the future in terms of the destruction that was coming upon his people. But consider also Hebrews 5, 7 where we read, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. So we see here that the Lord was no stranger to tears. In his successful struggle against the power of sin, his prayers were of such intensity and passion, they were frequently accompanied by tears. 
So the real answer as to how many times Jesus wept is not once or twice, but in private, frequently, although only two instances of public weeping are actually recorded for us. Somehow knowing the Lord shed tears encourages me. It's as if somehow his tears are mingled with my own, bringing me comfort in my time of need. Now tears are nearly at their end, and they won't simply end as beautiful a thing as that is. Isaiah said that God will wipe away your tears. I'm sure that's a metaphor to describe the end of our suffering that produces tears, but it could be that in some spiritual sense I cannot yet fathom, Jesus will deal with every one of the tears I ever shed in a way that seems as if he's wiping each one of them away with his nail-scarred hand. Isaiah next said, the rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. In the context of the original verses, he was talking about the nation of Israel, of course, God's chosen people, the Jews. The word for rebuke can be translated reproach or shame. We're gonna use the word shame. Certainly you'd agree that the history of the Jews has been one of reproach and shame with regards to their treatment by the other nations and peoples of the world. That shameful treatment hasn't stopped USA Today reported this week that Jews in the eastern Ukrainian city of Donetsk, where pro-Russian militants have taken over government buildings, were told they have to register with the Ukrainians who are trying to make the city become a part of Russia. Masked men were waiting for Jewish people after the Passover Eve prayer to hand them flyers ordering them to register. While we're talking about Israel, I should mention that the preservation of the Jews as a people, their return in 1948 to the Promised Land is the modern day fulfillment of many Bible prophecies, many ancient, specific Bible prophecies. If anyone were to say that in order to believe God, they'd need to see a miracle, then they need only look on a modern map and know that Israel has returned as God promised they would. Now we're not Israel, so what does shame have to do with us? Well, can you in all honesty say that there is nothing you are ashamed of? If you answer yes, then I'd suggest you take a moment to reread the Ten Commandments. Let me refresh our memories with just two of them. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Wait a minute, before you say you're in the clear because you haven't murdered anyone, nor are you committing adultery, Jesus interprets those commandments for us in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. He says, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. You've heard it said that, uh, to you by those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, sometimes people try to eliminate portions of the Old Testament because they seem too harsh. It's hard to sometimes put it into perspective with the gentle Jesus of the New Testament. This is one of those sections that you think, well, maybe Jesus didn't really say that. Maybe he didn't really mean that because he's just taken the Ten Commandments and put them on some kind of steroids. I mean, you, you used to be able to say, I haven't killed anybody, I'm clean, I'm not committing adultery. And Jesus says, well, actually, if you're even angry with somebody, ever, if you've ever had a lustful thought, then you've broken those commandments. Every single one of us has broken these commandments because we've sinned in our hearts. 
We can't help it in one sense because we're born with a sin nature. Anger and lusts are things I, found in, I find in my heart and I should be ashamed of them. The end is near for shame. When I go to be with the Lord at death or I'm caught up in the rapture, I will no longer have this body of flesh to contend with. I will then be sinless for eternity in my new glorified resurrection body. So the question today is, are you ashamed of something? While we wait for the end of shame, there is confession and repentance and forgiveness. So if you're here this morning, Christian or non-Christian, and you're ashamed of something, it's, it's a good thing if you do something about it. And I say that because I'm running into more and more people, certainly in the world, but as well in the church or professing Christians who are clearly disobeying God. I read something the other day you know, on Facebook, so it must be true. <laughs> no, it was just something like, if it's not in God's word, it's not God's will. Would you agree with that? It's not in God's word, it's not God's will. But so many Christians today are living in some kind of a sinful situation and they know it. And they read the same words that we read. They're lusting in their hearts, they're committing adultery, they're living together in sin, but they have excuses for it. Uh, they have uh, different ways of spinning it, as it were. They're not ashamed to be found out. In fact, they're telling people about it. There's no shame. They need to have some shame because with shame can come repentance and confession and the forgiveness of sin and a restoration of fellowship with the Lord. Maybe you're in a situation like that today. Don't start thinking of all the reasons why you cannot get out of that situation. Think of what it's doing to the heart of God. Be ashamed and then do something about it. Are tears welling up this morning? Maybe not right at this moment, but there's a suffering you're enduring that makes you cry or want to cry. An ongoing suffering. Maybe it's physical, maybe it's emotional, maybe it's spiritual, maybe it's all three. Maybe it's a combination of things. You know, life, uh, life is hard, is it not? It's very, very difficult, physical life. Jesus wept. He can comfort you. He understands. He knows what you're going through. We, we don't see the end of tears yet, but one day we will. In the meantime, cry and seek the Lord. And when you're worried about where he is when it hurts, remember that he was on the cross dying for you so that you could live forever, so that we could get through this, so that there would be an end to tears. Imagine the world we would be facing if there were no resurrection of Jesus Christ. If in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord would have said, that's it, this is as far as I can go, as he sweat great drops of blood in the stress that was on him facing the cross. If he had subjected himself to the temptation of the devil in any of the other situations and, and given up on his mission, what kind of a world, what hope would we have then? And so I, you know, sometimes I don't have any words for people when they're suffering, and that's, that's okay. But I do have a savior for them when they're suffering who has suffered with them and will suffer alongside them and who will shed tears with them. What about death? Are you ready for it? Well, you're not unless you've acknowledged your sin and trusted Jesus Christ to save you. You can do that now, and it's better to do it late than never. Amen? Let's pray together.